G'day, I'm Dr. Carl, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 353. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison, Claire Klingenberg and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Dobriden! Hey, San Hevisan! Wow, guys! We are in Sydney! Yay, at upside the moment. down! Upside We're down, upside yeah. down. Yes. We're yeah. like bats hanging from the, from the ceiling. <laughs> and yes, uh, we have a feeling that the idea that the Earth, Earth is flat is probably not, right, not correct. And we've also tested the hypothesis that Australia doesn't exist, and we found out that in fact it does exist. <laughs> At least we found something Fair that enough. claims to be Australia. Eureka, we found land! Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's been great. We've had a great time so far. We've been here for less than a week, three days, something. You, for you, you, that is. You arrived yesterday, I, Anders. Uh, for me, it's not even two days yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's happened so much. And uh, today we uh, we were at the Skeptics in the Pub, Sydney Skeptics in the Pub, with uh, Dr. Carl, Richard Saunders. Yeah. Tim Mendham. Tim Mendham, yes. yes. And many others from uh, the local Skeptics. And uh, this uh, was the first official event that was thrown for us and uh, that, that there's going to be a lot more than that <laughs> of course yeah 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 and it, it was a blast it was it? a blast so it was it was a great start to our whole staying here it was amazing i don't know about you guys but i was so flattered that we could even be here i interviewed uh, dr carl mm. it was such a great experience it was like a, a dream come true <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really inspiring and what i but i what i also really enjoyed is um pontus interviewing himself <laughs> right. So, for listeners, there's a there's a misconception going around here that perhaps people think that uh, Richard Saunders and Pontus Berkman is the same guy, or at least brothers. Or yes, yeah. so um, it's not true. I've seen both of them in the same room at the same time, and there's definitely at least two of them. Yeah, so you could still be <laughs> twins, yeah. but I think there's a lot to that. And uh, yeah, if, it's been a running joke ever since we got here. <laughs> but I think it, it won't die out anytime soon. But I think it's important to, to, to mention that we are not here only to talk about our experience. Yeah, of course, Luna's here. Yes. With us. <laughs> what do you have to say, Luna? So we're not only here to talk about our experience in Australia, but also we recorded the whole evening tonight. Yeah. And we would like to share it with our listeners so that it's not Soon only as possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we will try to put it out on time. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's get into it. Yes, let's do that.
<laughs> All right, so we're outside the venue for tonight's big event where we're meeting Dr. Carl. Any last thoughts before we set the thing up? Oh, no, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm <laughs> right. just as usual. You're right. So we have Richard here as well. Yeah, we're looking for our, our audio gear. It's arriving in a car right on the side of the street here. We're just waiting, waiting, yeah. waiting. waiting. Tim, where are you? Where are you? Yeah. We are oh, forming a welcoming committee for Tim Mendham. Yeah, we're, we're, we're lucky that we uh, arrived here a little bit early because yeah. the venue was full with people that didn't realize this was a, going to be a yes. private event. <laughs> so uh, the, they had to kick them out. And yeah. it wasn't that very popular, was oh, it? They grumbled a bit, but they're gone. Yeah, all right. So, uh, yeah, so we're looking forward to tonight. But it's a lesson for skeptics. Yeah. Uh, if people don't even read the signs that are are well, it did say put private there event. for their information. It did, then but it's, it was easy to miss. If you're just going down the steps, you might not see the sign. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. But, but yeah, what what do we expect <laughs> from, from people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we're looking forward for doing the rest of this tonight. Mm -hmm. All right. So. We managed to get the stuff inside, didn't we, Andras? Yes, we did. Yes. Uh, Tim came with the car and we managed... We even found where the cables fit after a while. So now we're uh, relaxing, waiting for the highlight of the evening. Claire has joined us. Hi, everyone. Yeah. Annika will join us a little bit later. She's still with Luna at the hotel. So, anticipation. Hello. Thank you for coming along to Skeptics in the Pub. For those who don't know, I'm Tim Mendham. I'm the Executive Officer of Australian Skeptics. And I also edit the magazine, which is here. If anyone who hasn't seen it, or anyone who wants to get a copy, there's a whole pile of them here. Please take them. They're, these are free, and it saves me from taking them home again, right? Take as many as you like. Okay, that's one gone. Right, thank you. But I'll give you five more later on. Okay. But no, no, please, th these are free. The magazine comes out quarterly. It is the best sceptic publication ever published in Australia, right? So, yeah, that's been endorsed. Thank you. I know we had a survey done of one, and that was sort of proved right. Okay, the convention is in Canberra on the 3rd and the 4th. So if you happen to be wandering down there to Canberra, please, you know, make yourself known and come along. There are free social events and all that sort of stuff. But uh, on the website, skepticon.org.au, but yeah, you can buy tickets to come along to the convention, the first one face-to-face -face for a couple of years, or you can go for an online streaming version, so if you want to stay at home. But uh, all sorts of activities going on. Have a look at the website, see what you want to do. Please take advantage of it. Okay, I don't think there's anything more for me to say, apart from please take some magazines, and I'll pass you on to Richard Saunders. Thank you, Tim Mendham. Welcome, everybody. Oh, somebody gave Tim a clap. That's great. <laughs> Um, I, I'd like to, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, the land from which we are broadcasting and pubbing uh, tonight, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And what a lineup we have for you tonight, folks. It's great to see so many of you here back at Skeptics in the Pub. We've only had two Skeptics in the Pub since the beginning of the pandemic. So next year, we're hopeful to bring back our full uh, year worth of skeptics in the pub, but we'll certainly let you know via the meetup page how that's going. As I said, we've got a great lineup tonight. We've got our guests from Europe, the European Skeptics Podcast, folks, everybody. They're here tonight. 
And we have the president of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, Claire Klingenberg, here tonight too, folks. And as Tim said, for the benefit of those people down the back, <laughs> as Tim said, uh, they're all here for the Australian Skeptics National Convention next week in, in Canberra. Promises to be a great event. But tonight, to kick off our return to Skeptics in the Pub, I'm going to hand the floor over to a man who needs no introduction, really. It's our friend for many years, the former Skeptic of the Year, Dr. Carl Kruzelniski. Uh, hello, everybody. Look, um, so glad to see you all. I thought I'd start off on the topic of ignorance. E, mean, I meaning not, nor A to know. And we all have different areas of ignorance. So I'm moderately cool with gastroenterology. A bit weak with forestry. Geology, I know nothing. So I'll talk about something far more relevant to the pub, which is alcohol. Now, let us consider two favourite drinks. It's the rum and cola, but it can be a rum and diet cola, or it can be a rum and regular cola. Now, for a show of hands, who knew that the rum and diet cola will get you drunker? Show of hands, who knows that? One, two... Right, okay, interesting. Let me take you through what's going on. So, they each have the same amount of alcohol, but the rum and regular cola has twice as much calories, or kilojoules, whatever unit you want, or if there are any Americans here, cubic furlongs per square second. <laughs> so, now this was a surprise to me because in my entire medical career, and even in gastroenterology, I had no idea that the way that the stomach, which is where stuff gets mushed up, empties itself, is not on a volume rate, you know, so many mils per minute, but on a calorie rate. It moves out into the small intestine, where stuff gets absorbed, it moves out stuff at two to three calories per minute. I had no idea. I asked one of my colleagues who was a dietitian. I said, is this true? And she said, yes. She's a professor of um, this stuff. And I said, how come I didn't know? And she said, Carl, how many hours of dietetics did you study in your entire medical degree? And proudly I said, eight hours. And she said, well, I've done 10 years. Okay, right. That's why I didn't know. So what happens in the case of somebody having the regular cola is that it sits inside the gut for longer. The amount of alcohol stays in the gut for longer because it's only being delivered to the small intestine where it gets absorbed at the rate of two to three calories per minute. So firstly, you get a slower delivery of the same amount of alcohol to the uh, small intestine where it gets absorbed. But secondly, there are some enzymes, the alcohol dehydrogenases, that exist not just in your liver but in your stomach. And they will break down the alcohol. So let us now consider two people, identical twins, who for the purpose of our study have done everything exactly the same for their entire life. And on this night, they decide to change. They go to a party and one of them, they each have three rum and colas, but one has diet colas, one has regular. The one who has the regular cola has their three regular rum and regular colas, leaves the party, gets picked up by the cops, their blood alcohol level is 0.3, they're sent on their way. But the other identical twin, who has three rum and diet colas, registers 0.055. Then they're picked up by the cops, there's a miscarriage of justice, they end up in a cell with a very large hairy man who has love and hate tattooed on the knuckles of each hand. Then they end up becoming a nom 
for the Hells Angels. Anybody know what a nom is? A nom is the bottom stage of being a Hells Angel where you do all the dirty work. And shortly afterwards, on their release from jail, after this miscarriage of justice, they are outside a primary school on their big Harley Davidson, idling away, making lots of illegal noise, wearing a leather jacket with a big beer gut, selling methamphetamine to your children and nieces because you did not know that diet drinks get it drunker and it's your fault. <laughs> At this stage, I will now throw open for questions. And do we have any questions? Otherwise, I'll just hand over to Richard. We'll move on to our European sceptics. We, ha we have a raging microphone, ra roving microphone. And try and have the questions as far geographically scattered across the room because Richard wants some exercise. Thank you. You implied there was a third cola. Uh, if I had implied there was a third type of colon, yeah, well, of course, there is the colon that appears in uh, language where you might have a scientific paper called um, The Effects of uh, Aspirin Upon Women. And if you do that as a scientific paper, you will get very little recognition. But... And this was discovered way back in the early 1980s. If you put a subheading which is very short, and this is very important for scientific literature, if you put a subheading such as sex and drugs, colon, the effect of aspirin upon women, then that paper will be referred to far more frequently. And we started off with people having virtually no use of colons. It rose to about 40% by the late 1990s and has stayed there ever since. This is good, but that implies that some 60% of the scientific writers do not have proper colonic correctness. <laughs> so we'll move right along and Dr. Carl will now be interviewed for the European Skeptics podcast by none other than Andras Pinter. Thank you very much, and I really feel privileged that I can, I can ask a couple of questions. Um, Dr. Carl, first of all, you've been doing this for a while, four decades. <laughs> so more than four decades. That means that you've seen a lot of change in the world, um, let it be climate change, uh, other uh, kinds of changes. But how has science communication changed since you started doing that? Are there many things that you need to do differently yep. since you started? Um, firstly, there are more people getting into it, which is good. Secondly, you need to go into the different types of media expression. So we're seeing a st uh, change in the media, such as less emphasis upon newspapers and more upon the social media. And in this case, I deliberately go onto TikTok for that reason. Let me explain. In TikTok, the average age of the person who joins is less than 20. In TikTok, uh, two-thirds are female. Now, this study goes back a year, but in the first 30 minutes on TikTok, when we're looking at females aged 11 to 19, 90% um, were told lies about the vaccine and two-thirds were told lies about vac uh, COVID. So therefore, I have gone onto COVID simply to follow that old rule that all is needed for evil to triumph is that good people do nothing. Now, that kind of implies I think of myself as a good pe person. So let's just say that all is needed for evil to triumph is that barely adequate people do nothing. So <laughs> that's why I'm going on to COVID. And um, it's kind of weird in a way. On one hand, I do a deep uh, TikTok about what happens to black holes here and there, 10,000 views. I do something on why fart, what happens to farts if you hold them in, five and a half million. Why do farts smell more in the shower? Five and a half million. Black holes, 10,000. Go figure. Uh, but obviously on TikTok and 
on most of social media, you need to communicate in in small bursts, right? Uh, so there are there's no uh, real place for explaining things at length. So do you th still think that uh, the message, the real message of science, uh, of scientific fields, can get through? No, it cannot. Um, sometimes things are hard. It's just hard and it takes time. So I'll be listening to a podcast, maybe Radio Lab. Any Radio Lab fans around here? A few? Yeah, okay. And then they'll say something and I'll play it back and then I'll just, in frustration, pull over at the side of the road, listen to it seven times and then finally I understand. So uh, there are some concepts that take time to understand and you're not going to get it in a short burst, but what you can do is light the flame of knowledge. Um, always I think of my potential audience as the following. A 10-year-old, any gender, moderately intelligent, with high curiosity and zero knowledge. That's my audience. So keeping them in mind, I try to explain things in little bursts. And, and the other thing is that um, more entertainment than a university course so I don't give all the information that's more in the book so I've got a whole bunch of ways of getting uh, messages out there and in the books is where I go into great depth one part of the demographic that is very important in my opinion and you didn't mention them is politicians the, the, the ones who are making the decisions can you achieve that do you have their ear as well uh, luckily, I got a good education on this. So in the year 2007, I ran for the Federal Senate. Anybody vote for me in this room? Not one, 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 one. Okay, two. So out of the 782,000 votes that I needed to become a senator for the Australian Federal Parliament, I got 44,000 votes under the line, which if you're not familiar with the system, is the highest ever done by a single person in Australia. And secondly, if you don't know what under the line means in Australian politics, you'd pretty well deserve anything that happens to you. <laughs> I... I ended up being interviewed by various parts of the media and, to my surprise, was actually uh, lied about. So people said things about me that were complete lies after they'd done an interview with me. And um, I got a great education. It cost me a quarter of a million dollars, um, but it was, I'm still paying it off, but it was a good education. One part of the education with regard to politicians is that um, it doesn't matter the so-called flavour of party to which they belong, but rather the integrity of the person. Secondly, there are good people and bad people in politics. Thirdly, on average in our society, about 1% of people have psychopathic tendencies. The percentage is higher in politics. Um, fourthly, in most cases, good people are forced into a roller coaster, a steamroller ride, a, a, a treadmill over which they have no control. So, fifthly, the way is not to try to convince them, boot them out and go run for politics yourself. That's the bottom line. You, you, you can't change them. They're too dedicated. Even good people are following the party line. So you have to run for politics yourself or find somebody and support them. And then uh, if they go bad, find somebody else. Not everybody can run for politics. You've got to have a thick skin. So on page three of the Telegraph, the headline was Dr. Carl, the whole width of the page. Next line, eco-hypocrite. Uh, and then underneath that was a whole bunch of lies about me and, and a little bit of truth. And then there were two phone numbers you could ring to vote yes, whether I was an eco-hypocrite or no, I wasn't. Um, and, and that's the sort of treatment you get from the media. If, if you say that uh, you, if you want to make a change, then you have to go into politics yourself. How come... Or, or support somebody who has the political views that you want. 
Okay, not everybody has the thick skin needed to be able to avoid the lies. Like when there were so many lies told about me, I didn't weep and people said, didn't that upset you? No, it's like if you go out in the rain, uh, you'll get wet. Yeah. And if you're going to talk to certain parts of the media, they'll tell lies about you. And all you've got to do is follow the law that I learned from, where I get all my moral guidance from, actually the Godfather books, which is, it's not personal, it's just business. And how come, but how come then uh, the lobbyists uh, of, of, of different uh, groups, like, like those uh, pushing for, for less regulation regarding climate change and stuff, How can they be so successful without themselves getting into politics? Uh, how can they be so successful? Uh, money. Money is power. So there's a wonderful movie called Giant. And it's about a Texas family in the 1920s that shifts over, over from 1920s, 30s and 40s from cattle farming into oil production. Stars Rock Hudson, James Dean, Elizabeth Taylor. And at one stage, Elizabeth Taylor's family have not shifted over into oil. And she speaks to somebody in the oil family. Now, this is the 1920s. Millionaires were incredibly rare. She speaks to a fellow cattle person who has shifted over into oil and says, how's the shift going into oil? And they say, great, it's a million. And she said, wow, your property is worth a million, which is an impossibly large sum. And the person says, no, not worth income. And she says, what, a million a year? And they say, no, a million a month. And then in the movie, they casually drop in halfway through that they manage to avoid paying a pesky tax of 25%. So there are various groups that have got huge amounts of power through money, which can then influence politicians by paying them pathetic amounts of money. In Australia, I think we possibly have the cheapest politicians in the world, <laughs> where um, you get a thousand to one return. So if you give $5,000 to a political party that happens to win the election, you'll get back $5 million in some sort of contract or tax rebate. And we had a case of one Australian politician rolling over to say things about China for $5,000. Now, as I know, I'm already being paid, I think it's $10,000 tonight, and a BMW and a block of flats in Tasmania for tonight's gig. And, and this politician rolled over for $5,000. They're incredibly cheap. By the way, just a little addendum here. With regard to Australia, out of all the states that we do have in Australia, I, I'm very proud of being a person from New South Wales because even though some of the other states do come close from time to time, Australia, New South Wales does have the most corrupt and incompetent politicians. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing that. And as a last question, yeah, let's try to be positive here. So what is it that you are the most uh, optimistic about regarding the future? Finally, the kids have started having a revolution, walking the streets. So even before I was out of school, I was in street demonstrations against nuclear weapons. I was in street demonstrations to get Indigenous Australians the right to be counted in the census. Cows were counted, but not humans. Um, get them the vote, uh, the Vietnam War thingy, uh, gay rights, Black Lives Matter, climate change, um, get, getting Nelson Mandela out of uh, jail, a whole bunch of uh, street peaceful street demonstrations. I went up, and a very welcome sign is that now the kids are getting into it. About time. Dr. Carl, thank you very much. It's, it's been a great privilege. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Andres, and thank you, Dr. Carl, indeed, for coming along tonight. Carl, it's always a pleasure to see you. We've known each other for many years, and we always try to outdo each other with recording equipment whenever we meet, which is a lot of fun. I want he there we are. I've, I've got better recording equipment than you. So moving right along, folks, uh, with the show, our next guest speaker comes to us all the way from the Czech Republic. It's Claire Klingenberg, the president of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations. Claire. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I am so happy that, that, that I can speak to you tonight because, after all, your organization has so much history and, and has been around for such a long time. And uh, we are so lucky to get to share our experiences and to get to share the various works that we all do. So as it was mentioned, um, I am the president of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, which means absolutely nothing to you. Let's be honest, right? So I'll explain what it is that we do. Europe has a lot of countries. We're not one country, we are multiple countries, just to put that on the table. And each country, I know I'm not speaking to Americans, but you know, you never know. Uh, and each country has its own language, and each country has its own organization that does science communication or skepticism or any kind of critical thinking promotion you can imagine. And but we're all facing the same issues, and we're on a very small geographical place. So in uh, 1989, there was a meeting of all the European groups. It was the first European Skeptics Congress. And then in 1996, we decided to band together and create an overreaching organization that would try to facilitate communication among everyone from various languages and various backgrounds. That has been quite difficult because uh, even though we do have the same issues with various pseudo-medicines and, and conspiracy theories and, and uh, of misinformation, we have been always divided by language. Uh, and translating that, that always took a lot of time, but of course now uh, there are many programs that can help us with that. Uh, we, so we've been trying to, with the help of the ESB, try to kind of bridge the gaps amongst ourselves and communicate better. And we realized that we have so many wonderful, talented people doing all kinds of really interesting projects in various countries. So we try to support them and connect them with people doing something similar in other places as well. Uh, so, for example, uh, in Romania, there is a, a very interesting person who has a program of how to communicate with parents regarding vaccines in a very empathetic, heartfelt way. And I think that's something that generally we've seen in the skeptic movement as an uprising new approach, and that is empathetic skepticism. For a long time, uh, the skeptics have been perceived, and I'm not saying just in Europe, kind of all over the world, that were smug and arrogant and just like to other, you know, just like to feel superior to other people. And I think that, you know, speaking of what has changed in science communication, it is this understanding that we have to uh, be human first and skeptic second. And uh, this kind of empathetic skepticism is something that has also brought us into different topics than we dealt with before. Because as you well know, the skeptic movement, uh, the, one, the one in the 20th century, was fueled by a kind of an anti-psychic, anti-paranormal uh, belief uh, motives. But in reality now, many of us are in skepticism or are skeptical activists because we want to make the world a little bit better. And to do that, we actually have to listen to the people that we disagree with. 
So this kind of empathetic skepticism has brought us to more social issues when it comes to what it is that we're dealing with, because we realize that it's not people are not who believe in alternative medicine are not stupid, but a lot of times they've been just completely disregarded by uh, the mainstream medical societies or approaches, and that's that is especially true for various communities that are generally disenfranchised, but also for women. And we see that alternative medicine is mainly targeted at women because those are um, mainly disregarded by the medical communities, as Anika will speak to much more later. And then, of course, we look at the other ways how conspiracy theories move around, and we see that they are aimed at disenfranchised societies and disenfranchised individuals. So social issues are so tied up in skepticism, it's now almost impossible to do skepticism without that. And, um, and I think we understand more that science is no longer just this uh, ideal thing on a pedestal, but it's something that has a lot of bias in it because it's still done by humans. So what we're trying to do uh, in the European skeptic movement is to explain what science is to people and kind of try to understand what mistakes we've made in the past and to be able to work with those mistakes and make ourselves better, make ourselves more approachable and uh, friendlier and uh, make people understand that the word skeptic is not a bad thing and be, we can be friends even though we're skeptical. So thank you very much. <laughs> wonderful, Claire, wonderful. And of course, that, that's a very important uh, issue to think about moving forward with the skeptical movement worldwide. Well, now, folks, in this part of the show, I'm going to introduce the first speaker from the European Skeptics podcast, which is the real ESP experience, apparently. Um, by the way, just to remind you all, my name is Richard Saunders, not Pontus Berkman, <laughs> although sometimes I wonder. <laughs> so now, first speaker from the European Skeptics podcast is Annika Harrison. Annika. Thank you very much. Yeah, I will talk about um, how women are targeted in alternative medicine, but that will be much later. It will be at the convention. <laughs> so I'll talk about um, my home country a bit, about the state of skepticism and alternative medicine and everything we can think about in Germany. Um, so first, I want to introduce you to two movements that we have, and they are the Reichsbürger and the Querdenker. And most of you probably don't speak German, so I'll, introduce, <laughs> I'll translate that for you. Reichsbürger are empire citizens, and Querdenker are people that um, literally think across. So you can probably already guess where that's going to. <laughs> um, they also seem almost similar. They're right-wing uh, conservatives. conservatives. <laughs> um, they're against the government, and they have a connection with the new Germanic medicine, um, with lots of Woo, they're anti-vax, you get it. Um, Reichsbürger have been around for a few decades, so yeah, we know that problem in Germany. Querdenker only came around during the pandemic. They were against COVID measures. Um, Reichsbürger <laughs> believe that Germany is not an independent democratic country, but a satellite state of the, the US. <laughs> they say, well, it's because there's no peace treaty. Well, surprise, you don't need a, a peace treaty when a country surrenders. Um, <laughs> and they're called Reichsbürger because they want the German Reich of 1871 back, so the Prussian Empire. The Querdenker, as I said, are literally odd thinkers or across thinkers, and 
They um, sadly have found friends in the corner of Reichsbürger. Both groups are seen as harmless nutcases by some, but um, they can also be seen as highly dangerous. It depends on the perspective. Most people within this movement are afraid and worried, but not really violent. But there's a violent minority in uh, Ida Oberstein in Rheinland-Pfalz or Rheinland-Palatine. <laughs> um, a young man working at a gas station was actually killed in September 2021 because he asked the customer to wear a mask. So that's how that can uh, turn out. And two months ago, a plot to abduct our health minister, Karl Lauterbach, was actually unearthed. And that was done um, by the Querdenker <laughs> and the Reichsbürger. Luckily, they didn't succeed, but this is like this can just show where these things can lead to, where these movements can lead to. Then, of course, I want to quickly talk about homeopathy <laughs> because that's uh, really a German topic. We pretty much invented that shit. <laughs> so, the status quo in that is. Um, Yes, it's sadly still covered by most insurances, depending on where you are insured. Um, this is very infuriating because my glasses, my, or my contact lenses that work beyond the placebo effect, they're not covered by that. But homeopathy is. Sometimes it's even the only thing you can get. For example, if I want to get eye drops for my toddler and I don't want to go to the pediatrician, then I have to take homeopathy for her. I have to buy homeopathy because they don't have any other products like that. They don't have saline solution just like that. It has to be homeopathic. Luckily, with Karl Lauterbach, <laughs> we have a health minister who is conscious of that fact, conscious of the fact that it's absolute nonsense, and he is striving to unseat homeopathy in Germany. And we also have the information network homeopathy. They're doing an amazing job to um, make the public more aware of how much bullshit homeopathy is. And thanks to them, several federal countries already voted against supporting homeopathy further. The re general public still uses homeopathic products, though. Um, so Information Network Homeopathy and um, my uh, residential organization, um, GWP, or GWP, <laughs> we all have our work cut out for us. And um, EXO is the same, like we all know what to do. Then... We also have other woo in Germany. For example, um, a big drugstore that we have, think Priceline, um, is deep into um, anthroposophy. So like a lot of creams and lotions that are used by the German public are anthroposophic, which means they will, be, they will be produced under a full moon and they will use uh, bullhorns for that. So you get the picture. It's, it's full of <laughs> esoterics and woo. We also still have a lot of Waldorf and Steiner schools. They are a very popular alternative still. People actually don't realize how racist and anti-vax these schools are. So that's a big problem. So yeah, we have still lots to do, but things are looking up because science is becoming a cool thing. <laughs> so we have several cool science communicators in Germany like Martin Jan Kim or Martin Moder or Lydia Benecke, and they're all doing an amazing job. And they are turning uh, science into a cool thing Like we know also from Dr. Carl, like science is cool. <laughs> and um, that's why things are looking up in Germany. And that's why we all have hope. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> vielen, vielen Dank, Annika aus Deutschland. Sehr gut. So now we move on with our next speaker from the ESP podcast, 
is my twin brother all the way from Malmö in Sweden, Pontus Bachmann. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Speaking of homeopathy, it is not a big thing in Sweden, which is very close to Germany. And we, I mean, up until the 30s, where the Germans did some stuff that we shouldn't mention, <laughs> Germany was very popular in Sweden. Now, German was the first language, foreign language you taught at school, for instance. So we were very influenced by German and German things, and homeopathy was very big. But this is how you get rid of homeopathy. Uh, in 1951, one of the smaller manufacturers of homeop homeopathic pills, sugar pills, accused the two larger, the two major ones, for cheating. They claimed that these two uh, companies didn't even do the bullshit with the, with the sugar pills. They just bought sugar pills from a candy factory and just labeled them as homeopathy. Different labels for different remedies, of course. And uh, it was a um, scandal. It went to court. It was very, very much public. And it turned out it was actually true. They had been doing that. They bought the sugar pills from the candy factory and just relabeled them. Uh, this became, of course, a very big thing. In the, and the media at the time was not social media. It was in the big papers. And, and, and it, was, it, it became a big thing. It was discussed a lot. And the poor lawyers that had to defend these two major companies, they struggled to come up with any kind of good justification for this because it was proved beyond doubt that they had cheated. And the best excuse that they could come up with was that, well, everybody already knows that it's just sugar pills, so it's not actually fraud. <laughs> that didn't sit well with the legal system. That, that they didn't buy that, and it didn't sit well with the public. So a couple of years later, I think it was in 1954, they were convicted. A couple of people got, went to jail. These companies were eradicated. Of course, their value disappeared. So they disappeared. Unfortunately for the small whistleblower company, it <laughs> fell back on them as well, because now everybody knew that homeopathy is bullshit. And there was a big public event where just outside of Stockholm, they, the, the, the authorities, they gathered all the, the stock of these worthless sugar pills and they created a huge bonfire there. And, of course, that was big news as well. And the short thing is, and the good news is, that homeopathy, homeopathy has never recovered in Sweden. Even though people do not remember this incident, it's not really known, you cannot get homeopathy in Sweden because it got such a bad reputation over, what, what is it, almost 70 years ago? It is 70 years ago, and, uh, and it's never recovered. So when I, at the young, um, tender age of 45 or so, discovered the skeptics movement, I wonder why all the foreign skeptics were talking about homeopathy. I didn't know what it was. So it was very effective. So I, I think... I don't have any clear advice for how to orchestrate this in other countries, this scandal. But it, anyway, it's, it's a good story, and it shows that even uh, bullshit can fail if they, well, shoot themselves in the foot like that. Thank you very much. Tuck, tuck. Pontus, tuck. I don't know what he said. So. 
And uh, now I would like to introduce you to the Hungarian contingent, Andras Pinter. <laughs> the whole contingent. Thank you very much. So I don't know uh, how many of you are um, following what's going on in um, remote parts of the world like Hungary is, but... Um, Recently, we've been um, in trouble um, in the European Union for being too pro-Russian. And uh, one of the most important things that I would like to talk about is why uh, I tried to touch on the political questions with Dr. Karl as well, and why it's very important that uh, politicians hear us, or even we go into politics ourselves uh, at the convention in Canberra. Because that is basically where the decisions are being made. Uh, the, the decisions regarding climate change, regarding uh, regulation of, NG, uh, of not NGOs as well, but GMOs or homeopathy for that matter, uh, that is always, the decision is always made by politicians who are sitting in the right place uh, for that to happen. So we, we need to be aware of how they can deceive us, how they can exploit the fears that we can build up in ourselves and how they can, they can work with it further. So this is, this is what the Hungarian government has been doing for a while. They've been in power for more than 12 years now. And uh, they, they don't seem to go anywhere in the, in the next couple of decades, unfortunately. Especially if nothing happens. So we, this is why we as the, the Hungarian Skeptic Society uh, that I'm the president of, we try not to shy away from topics that are politically contaminated because everything is so politicized these days that we cannot shy away from those questions. And those questions these days uh, mostly uh, refer to uh, how we are being deceived, especially when it comes to things like the war in Ukraine. So Russian propaganda is a big machine, but unfortunately, that could be if we don't elect the right politicians, the ones who are in their right minds and want to do something good for the country, then we could end up with something very similar to that, like the Hungarian government, which has been centralizing the media uh, for, for many, many years now. So everything that is not state-controlled is marginalized completely in the country. And if you want to listen to the fact, you cannot, because obviously, since it has become a war, of informations and misinformation and uh, so the spreading of disinformation as well. So deliberately spending misinformation. Uh, so because of that, because it has become a battlefield, uh, we know that in war there are no limits. So uh, and especially when it comes to disinformation, it it is as old um, a concept as humanity itself. Since we have been having uh, wars against each other, uh, it has been a thing uh, that we try to spread disinformation so that we deceive the other part or the support of the, of the other part. This is what's happening with Russia, but not only by Russia, also by Ukraine. And it's understandable, so I'm not criticizing from the, them, them for that. But it sometimes comes as a reply, as some kind of an answer to the original propaganda the pro-war and pro-Russian propaganda, which the Hungarian government is unfortunately paddling like crazy. And uh, they, they try to um, portray the, the Russian leadership 
I almost said government, but it's, well, it's more like a kingdom. Uh, but they try to portray it as something to be followed because it's strong, it's, it, it knows what the right direction is, uh, and we are in good terms, uh, apparently. So this is why, right now, contrary to what our government is saying to us, we are the country with the least amount of gas reserves in the whole of Europe. Um, but the government is trying to convey the message that we are in good terms with Russia still. So this is why we are trying to hold back on the, all the restrictions that the EU is trying to imply on, um, on, on Russia. And the Russian sanctions are not working. This is what the Hungarian government says. So if you start fact-checking all those statements, all those claims, it turns out that it's basically full of BS. But how can we stop that? How can we stop that without making people realize that it's all BS, that we are being deceived, and do something about it? So sometimes uh, we need to do what things that are not necessarily to our best liking. For example, giving a vote to someone who's not the perfect candidate, but still will do, get the job done that we want them to get done. Uh, and we need to have our voices heard because otherwise they would not even know that we exist. The lobbyists everywhere, they are there. They are whispering things in their ears. They have the money to give to them. Uh, but if those people don't even know that there is a large number of people supporting science and being pro-science and want decisions to be made on the scientific basis, then how can we expect them to make the right decisions? So the reason why I wanted to say that and talk about that is because, unfortunately, I can only put up my country as the worst example in the whole of Europe uh, when it comes to democracy, when it comes to the right information, correct information, scientific facts being used in the decision-making ma decision process and supporting science in general. And I could go on and on and on about what they have done so far to attack science, uh, even as the institutionalized uh, scientific research. It's been like a war for us. So I'm sorry that I cannot be entertaining about this. I cannot uh, tell you things that are very positive. But uh, I just want everyone to think about that for a while and not let your country or the countries anywhere in the world uh, go in that direction because it's definitely the wrong direction. We need correct information, we need fact-checking, we need politicians who listen to people who make actual sense. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andres Pinter. And finally, and um, I don't believe they want to do this, but apparently the ESP podcast want to interview the Skeptic Zone podcast. So pass it over to, uh, what's your name again? Richard, Richard. Saunders. Yes. Yeah, Richard Saunders. So, Pontus Berkman, how long have you done this? No. <laughs> so, we all know, I mean, no offense to, to the rest of the panel here, but we all know who the real star of the show is, <laughs> except for Tim. Richard, uh, we have looked up to you for a long time. And we, um, both Andras and myself, were on uh, the skeptic zone as interview victims before we started podcasting, etc., etc. So I thought, 
So, yeah, it's, uh, it's his fault all of it. And I, uh, he's also, I mean, one of the masterminds behind these fantastic events. So I wanted to, well, we wanted to know a little bit more about you because you're mostly behind the mic or behind the interviewing side of, of the mic. And so please take us back to the, the origin of Richard Saunders, the skeptic. So how, how, how did that all start? When did you realize you were a skeptic? I was very young when I was born. So yeah. my, and no, um, so I, I was a, a kid of the 1970s. That's my golden childhood age. And for those of us in the room who remember the 1970s, it was the big UFO craze. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Watch the Skies, movies like the, the UFOs are coming or they're already here is another famous movie from the 1970s. And as a kid, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, I bought it. I believed it because that's what the media were, were selling. There was very little skeptical uh, messages being put forward. And then one day I saw James Randi on the Don Lane show. And they said, we're having this famous skeptic. And I thought, what are these crazy skeptics? What are and then Don Lane said, piss off to James Randi, if you remember that. But not long after that, there was a documentary that Channel 7 made with Dick Smith and James Randi called James Randi in Australia. And it was all about water diviners. And I watched it as a 14, 15, however old I was. And there's a wonderful scene when all the water diviners fail. And it's clearly they failed. And you get it why they failed. Randy says, hands up, who, who of all you water diviners, who still believes in water divining? And they all shot their hands up. And I could not believe it. I thought, surely they'd learnt their lesson by now. So that really started me on the long journey to skepticism because I found that fascinating from a psychological point of view. So what made you uh, become an activist? You decided not just to sit at home and laugh at the guys who, 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 who believed their own bullshit, but you decided to go out and do activism. So why did you do that, and what was the first skeptical activism that you took? Uh, it's, it, that's a difficult question. I'm not sure. Uh, probably because of James Randi again. In the year 2000, here in Sydney, they had a World Skeptics Convention Congress, and James Randi was the special guest star speaker. So I came along to that. I met Barry Williams, who some of you in the, in the room will remember, the late Barry Williams. And I said to him that I had the technical ability to digitize all the back issues of the Skeptic magazine, and maybe we could do something. And Barry thought this was a great idea. And within a couple of weeks, I was on the committee. <laughs> so this, this kid wants to do all this for free, right, come on to the committee. So it was a, a bit of a slow process because being on the committee, then going out to visit psychics. I think uh, Ian Bryce is in the back of the room there. Ian and I in the early days went out to test psychics and I thought that was fascinating. You have no idea how fascinating that is. Again, from, a, from the psychological point of view, to see somebody doing cold reading who really believes in it. Ultimately, I think the, the best answer I can give you is it's still, after 20 years to me, one of the most interesting things I can possibly do. And sometimes I hope I can make a difference, especially with the power-balanced wristbands and things like that. So sometimes we score our little successes. I think you share my uh, feelings that what we do need to start with are young people. Uh, so I know that you've done... Uh, you, you're visiting schools, you're doing outreach to younger people, something called the Mystery Investigators. Tell us a little bit about that. Almost 20 years ago, uh, at a skeptics convention in yeah, 2003, I was at a table 
uh, in Canberra, and also at the table were some science teachers. And they mentioned to us, the group of skeptics sitting around, they said, wouldn't it be interesting if some skeptics came along to our school to talk about this stuff? And that was the, the idea. So some colleagues, Ian Bryce again in the back room was one of the original mystery investigators, and he still is in the troop today, thought, yeah, we could do something like that. We could, we, I don't know, we could do a water-divining test. So we set up a water-divining test for the students to do, and 20 years later, we are still doing... In fact, this year, Ian helped me with the performance of the mystery investigators. And again, to see the kids, their brains turning over. When we, de- when we tell them how firewalking really works. Uh, in fact, Dr. Carl, you and I did a firewalking test some years ago. I built a fire pit for you and off you went. You, you went across it. Brave man. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, I, I don't know, maybe I'm in those young faces when they see how water divining works or doesn't work, I can see myself as a kid. And that same excitement comes back, I think. Then, of course, we from Europe and uh, beyond, Claire has also uh, American uh, ancestry, we know you more, more from the, the skeptic zone, the podcast. So how did that start? I just like the sound of my own voice, I guess. I mean. okay, me back. <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought it was a good idea. I heard about podcasting and I tried several ideas and I was, had a regular radio spot here in Sydney nearly 20 years ago. And it just sort of grew out of that. And I met the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe people uh, in Las Vegas, and it just inspired me to do it. And 14 years later, I'm still producing the Skeptic Zone every week. So, oh. At skepticzone.tv. <laughs> so, if, um, do you have, could you name three books that you would urge everybody to read? Yes, and they're all mine. Uh, the first one, <laughs> Origami for Beginners. Or, no, um, Flim Flam by James Randi, The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan, and The Faith Healers by James Randi. Three classic books, and I, they're probably in my top uh, five or so books, yeah. So finally, I think there are some people here, I've heard uh, some people here that are new to this, new to the skeptics movement. So if I want to be a skeptic, if I want to learn more about this, what, what should I do? Where, where do I start? Well, Tim Mendham over there will gladly talk to anybody who wants to be a new skeptic. We have copies of the magazine and we have copies of Skeptical Inquirer from the United States. Grab one, read it, have a look, see what we're into, what we do. Visit skeptics.com.au. There's lots of videos of our investigations. And if you think that's something that's interesting to you, then uh, drop us a line, subscribe to the magazine, and we'll take it from there. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now it's back to me again. Well, that concludes the formal part of the evening. Please stay around. Uh, help yourself to, to the, our guests. <laughs> uh, order some more beers. Have some uh, interesting conversations. I'm sure our guests would love to, to meet you and, and have a little chat before you all um, head off. But once again, from Sydney Skeptics in the Pub, wonderful to see you all. Uh, keep in touch. Next year, we hope to bring you many, many more interesting speakers throughout the year. But for now, thank you and good evening. Sure. 
all right, this <laughs> reliving the, the whole evening, it, it's uh, wow, almost the same. But uh, being there in person and meeting them, uh, these people face to face, unbelievable. Mm. Yeah, now we just have to pack our bags and head on to Melbourne. Yes, yeah. that's correct. By the time this episode yeah. goes out, yeah. I think we're already yeah. in the air. Yeah. Yes, yes, we probably will be. Uh, yeah. And yeah. of course, yeah. you can still yeah. track us down based on what's, what's available on the website. Because on the website, you can find our whole schedule for the, for the next almost two weeks. Yeah. All right. So until next week. Yes. Goodbye. Tschüss. Hey, do. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, Please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Get ready for take three. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. A I O U shells, seashells on the seashore. Peter Piper, pick the pick of pickle pepper. A E I O U and in three. G'day, I'm Dr. Carl, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, which is the real ESP experience.